0: This week we're having a conversation with Tori Williams Glass about anti-racism on Ask Science Mike.
1: He's got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk
0: anyway. We got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Science Mike, real name, Mike McCarg. But this week, I'm asking the questions. My friend, Tori Williams-Douglas has joined us on the show to talk about faith and science and neuroscience and anti-racism. It's a really great conversation and I think we've got a lot to learn together. So what do you say? Let's get it started. Well, I am so excited uh, this week. I think this is my first ever Twitter fave Ask Science Mike episode. (laughs) And I am absolutely giddy to be talking with Tori Williams Douglas this week. Tori is a single mom, a student, a writer, an anti-racism educator. We'll talk about that a lot on this episode. And probably my favorite part of her bio is also not your black friend. (laughs) Tori, welcome to Ask Science Mike.
1: Hi, science make. I'm so excited to talk to you today.
0: Tell me about this right in your bio. You had to add that not your black friend. What's that about?
1: Um, I think that so many, well, I mean, first of all, I, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I still live here. And yeah, having like, having like a black friend is kind of like people's, you can't talk to me about racism card that they like to play. Um, Mm. It's like I associate with someone who's black and I always want to be like, yo, Thomas Jefferson also associated with black people. That doesn't mean you're not a racist. <laughs> so um, being in proximity, I'm trying to remember who said this. I can I feel like it might, it might've been Clint Smith on Twitter, but um, yeah, being in proximity to black people does not make you not racist. So um, yeah, I try to like encourage people to go out and find other people to uh, be friends with other people of color, (laughs) because yeah, having just one, having just one black friend is not, that's not good enough. Sorry. Twitter counts though. Twitter friends count.
0: So what's interesting is uh, depending on what research you're looking at, somewhere between 40% and 75% of white people don't have literally any black friends. Um, And so I I think what's funny to me is how for white people, they can feel this sense of exoneration from matters of race because literally having one or two black friends puts you in a very small minority of white people and maybe compared to other white people, almost an expert on matters of race, which is not my way of uh, validating the people with one or two black friends, but just like illustrating how insular and how frankly ignorant white culture is about what society is like for everyone else. Uh, And it's a fascinating dynamic to me that, you know, I could imagine there are literally thousands of people who follow you on Twitter, who you are the most significant personal representation of black culture and black identity in their lives. Um, which makes me like really excited that you take on advocacy the way that you do, despite the personal cost that would have the emotional labor involved. But it also makes me really sad that our country um, has unfolded the way that it has, that white culture has been so carefully and meticulously engineered to keep white people kind of among themselves and separated from the consequences of their lifestyles and the economic systems that empower those lifestyles.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, self-segregation is kind of the, I mean, it's kind of the results of like white flight and after, you know, after the civil rights movement and, you know, there was a lot, there were a lot fewer restrictions. I mean, the restrictions still kind of existed. They just, you know, were, underground as opposed to being blatant, um, in terms of where black people could live and work. And, um, yeah. So after, after legal segregation ended, there was kind of like this rush to like self-segregate. Um, and yeah, that, that has consequences. And like you said, it means most white people don't have a black friend or, you know, they have like somebody, a colleague, like someone on their team at work or something like that, Um, but not someone who's ever invited them over for dinner, Um, which is kind of, (laughs) that's kind of the metric that I use. I can't even remember who told me that originally, but it's like, if a Black person hasn't invited you over to their house for dinner, they're not your friend. And Mm -hmm. um, I I think that's kind of true in a lot of ways, but then, you know, social media makes it so that There's just, there's not any excuse, regardless of where you live, (laughs) um, to be surrounded by only hearing only white voices. So, yeah.
0: I occasionally and not so occasionally have white friends uh, get upset with the ways that I talk about white supremacy. And uh, several of this has not happened once, this has happened several times. A friend has come to me and said, Well, I asked my black friend at work. And he said, what you're saying is too far. And I'll say, you asked your black friend at work. Have you ever seen this friend outside of a work context? Oh no, I've never seen him outside of work. Okay. <laughs> does, does this person like report to you perhaps? Yes. This person reports to me. <laughs> like, so Yikes. It like an unfiltered <laughs> perspective from a person of color who works for you and you haven't seen outside of your office.
1: Right, but Uh, that gets labeled as friend, right? Like, they came to you and said, this is my friend, when it actually it's like, this is my subordinate, and they want to keep their job.
0: Right, right. Well, I mean, white culture is kind of uh, imploding on itself right now anyway. I mean, white people have few friends in general, especially in a post-religious context. Mm -hmm. And it's like this expanding of the word friend to include acquaintance is almost this matter of like survival I mean you've got this super high suicide rate for boomer whites a lot of which extends from just a basic sense of profound loneliness um, and that that's I, I maybe we'll start there you know we've had this considerable exodus from the church over the last 25 years it's really accelerated the last 10 and uh, so there's a lot of people who listen to Ask science Mike that have faith backgrounds and not You know, probably about half of the people that listen are still in some church context today or some faith tradition today. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your own history with faith and kind of the story of how you got to where you are now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, grew up in um, the Evangelical Church in Portland, Oregon. And, you know, the Evangelical Church is as we know, overwhelmingly white in general, but in Portland, it's pretty much white. Um, Portland is not a diverse city compared to other major cities in the U S so yeah, I had that as kind of my cultural, like the cultural backdrop um, for what I experienced. And also, um, I was also homeschooled for religious reasons. Um, So and I can't, you know, we were in a homeschool group of, you know, probably 50 to 100 families, I would guess. And I can't think of any kids in that group at all who weren't white except for us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was raised going to church regularly, you know, two, two, three times a week generally. And um, I really, you know, I really thought that I would be in the church in the you know probably in the evangelical church for for my entire life um and then once i hit college there was a lot of a lot of fear-mongering kind of started in in the evangelical community um in regards to uh gay marriage being being legalized and so there was this major push in multiple states to you know rewrite state constitutions to define marriages between a man and a woman oregon had one of these um, um oregon had a bill on this specific subject and i you know i was like i know that you know in my head i'm supposed to you know judge judge LGBTQ people and you know the Bible says quote unquote being gay is sinful. Um that was scare quotes, by the way. Um <laughs> and but then I'm like, I, you know, I work with I work downtown with all these amazing people who are queer and I'm supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to be like judging them, and they're frankly kinder, more generous people than any of the people I go to church with. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know. I'd been I struggled with that for a very 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 long time um, because I I, you know I kept finding myself in these church contexts where I was like well I want to go to church I want to go to a church that like takes the Bible seriously which kind of means literally Um, and all of those churches are kind of you know have these like anti LGBTQ theological stances that they take and you know so I you know I wrestled with this for for a a really long time Um, just the kind of chasm between what I was being taught about, you know, in church and then my actual experiences with queer people Um, this, you know, this was before, I mean, and this is the same time I guess that I'm like realizing that I also am like probably queer, but I can't really act on that in any significant way because, you know, that's not biblical and saving yourself from marriage and all of this stuff. So, um, I really, I really started to wrestle with this when I was in this crazy cult, like fundamentalist church, uh, run by Mark Driscoll that you might've heard of called Mars Hill in Seattle. And, um, I was like, how am I, how am I supposed to like, in good faith, tell these people that I know, like, Hey, you know, God's drawn a line and you're out and I'm in and I couldn't do it. And I finally realized if I was going to be judged for something, you know, uh, by God, I wanted it to be for being too inclusive as opposed to, um, excluding people that God loved and cared for and, you know, had saved. So I kind of came to that conclusion, um, about the same time that, um, about the same time that we started seeing all of this documentation of um, police brutality and violence and murder, and that was kind of that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Even though it wasn't, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it was a very heavy piece. Realizing that evangelical church when it came down to it, if they had to choose between like me, like a member of their community and a cop, they would choose the cop every time. Um, And, you know, it was realizing that like my, my life here on earth had no, no value to them whatsoever. Um, You know, and, and seeing like the evangelical response to um, the murder of Michael Brown was just that was, that was kind of it for me. Um, I was like, okay, well, I'm clearly not wanted in this space. And, um, you know, if this were me, if this were my dad, if this were my brother, if this were my cousin, like you, you'd still be out here on Facebook gloating, even though you know me personally. Um, and so that was, I kind of kind of threw in the towel at that point, um, in terms of Christianity and, um, yeah, I, I'm not really sure exactly where I land right now spiritually. I don't have, I don't really have any like spiritual practices, unless you want to include like meditation. But it's, I don't know. I don't necessarily. Like, I do. Okay, great. I don't, I don't believe in like a higher power necessarily, um, but I will, you know, in in the summertime when I get to like go out with my boys and like look at the stars. And talk to them about just like how amazing and unfathomable the universe is. Like that's a pretty incredible spiritual experience, and it doesn't come with any of the like guilt or shame <laughs> that church generally comes with. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my my spiritual background. I'm now here in in no man's land, and I you know f- have found that. in terms of building community shared values are more important than shared beliefs. Um, and so that is, that's kind of where I've landed. So I have people all over the theological spectrum, um, who are in my life and really important to me. And because we share values, we don't have any, we don't have any like religious conflict, um, or like, arguments you know we respect one another and our experiences and beliefs and that's kind of yeah that's kind of where I've landed so I don't necessarily associate with like the atheist movement and you know in part because I'm a black woman and they don't have any need for me or want or whatever I mean it's it's the same as evangelicalism functionally it's the same as evangelicalism they're like we don't care like you can be on our side but you know we don't care if you live or die um so yeah, that's <laughs> um you know, to me like shared values are are much are much more important um than like believing the same thing. So yeah. That's kind of my religious background and not a nutshell, me rambling for 15 minutes.
0: I have the, do you no, you're not rambling. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I have this like very similar frustration uh i lost a kind of higher power belief in a very similar way that you did and felt very at home for a short while in the atheist movement um but like my loss of theology sent me in search for a new moral philosophy and uh as i started to study humanism um I became wildly more progressive on justice issues. And uh, what I found was that most other atheist humanists, their primary preoccupation was the elimination of religion
1: Hmm. or the
0: freedom from religion. But they didn't want to talk about beliefs brutality. They didn't want to talk about poverty. Uh, They didn't want to talk about white supremacy. They didn't want to talk about the fact that somehow... Conveniently, the supposedly superior way of understanding the world uh, through skepticism seemed to uniquely find high-income, high-education white men um, and few other people. And when I would bring those things up, um, people got really vicious online, like really, really vicious. And a lot of the people I used to talk to in the atheist movement have kind of blacklisted me and moved away from me, not because I identify as a Christian again, but because they'd rather talk about like Jordan Peterson or something uh, than the significant issues facing most people on earth. Um, And it's, it's fascinating to me the way that both evangelicalism and atheism create this like highly cerebral world focus um, that almost limits people, not almost, does limit people from engaging with some of the most pressing issues that, again, face most people in the world, and it's a new sort of insular bubble. Uh, it's why I have such frustration both with my Christian background uh, and my atheist background. Both are utterly united in the fact that uh, the way forward for the liberation of people of color is for them to to make the correct intellectual assents.
1: <laughs> it's, mm, yeah. it's crazy yeah.
0: and that's also how i got to um noticed you because i noticed you had um some common faith experiences in the in the evangelical church but you also had a very high degree of science literacy um a very high degree of science literacy and when i saw you talk about the brain often i would see you even referencing things that i hadn't read yet which if if you're trying to figure out listening right now uh on the podcast how to get my attention say things i haven't heard about the brain yet (laughs) it's like uh an irresistible lure, like the warner brothers cartoons the uh when the little little uh smoke trail would come out from a pie and everybody would float toward it. That's me only with brain science. <laughs> so I was super curious what got you into neuroscience and studying the brain? Uh
1: well that was kind of, it was kind of a fluke, honestly. So um initially it was because um I had started to wonder if my oldest son was on the spectrum. And so I started reading kind of every kind of like parenting book I could get my hands on, um, and trying to put, you know, put what I was like learning in context because I was surrounded by, um, you know, I was a new mom and surrounded by people who were, you know, shilling essential oils and, um, kind of like you know, skeptical of vaccines and, I was like, okay, I need, I, you know, I need more than this. I need to understand what is going on, like in my child's brain. And, um, I, so I just, you know, I just began reading, researching, um, brain development was incredibly, incredibly fascinating to me. Um, and so that was kind of, that was kind of where it kicked off, um, ended up going, you know, ended up going back to school and just taking some like basic biology classes, like, like biology 101, 102. And that was, that was really educational for me because it gave me the ability to explain a lot of neuroscience on like a very kind of basic level, you know, in the in in way that like, you know, a child can understand it. And then, excuse me, I, um, ended up getting a job actually in a neuroscience lab. So that was, I guess, yeah, that was kind of how that, that kicked off. Um, Oops. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, being in a neuroscience lab absolutely like exposed me to all kinds of, um, like all kinds of different things that I'd like never learned. So I learned a lot more about like brain structure, brain wiring, um, and things like that. And that was, and also I happened to work with someone who was, um, somebody who was uh, a MacArthur fellow um, who got funding to study uh, police brutality. And um, so having, you know, having that there was like, just, gave me the ability to learn and absorb so much being in that environment, um, you know, every single day. And that was kind of, yeah, that was kind of where it, it, um, that was kind of where where it all came from, like trying to figure out like kind of the neuroscience behind racism at the same time that I'm trying to figure out the neuroscience behind autism. And then I, you know, just so happened to get a job in a neuroscience lab. And so that was kind of, yeah, it was a pretty incredible experience for me and, um, gave me a lot of education and tools and resources to be able to educate other people. So
0: is that what, um, for anyone who's listening and doesn't like pay attention, there's, uh, like, um, a movement, a hashtag, I don't really know what you would call it, called Exvangelical on Twitter, of which many people who listen to Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist podcast participate in. Um, and Tori is kind of a really well-known voice in that community, that overwhelmingly white community. Um, how much of a role did your discussions of the neuroscience and racism play in what I've kind of noticed uh which is a massive white person pile on of you like <laughs> where people uh people suddenly are like oh wow white supremacy might be a thing clearly Tori's best use of her time is to explain it to me and tell me what to do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. Um well <laughs> Yeah, so, ex-evangelical, you know, people, and even before ex-evangelical, you know, people who had just left the evangelical church, um, you know, the evangelical church, again, is overwhelmingly white, and so, because of that, you know, the people who are leaving are overwhelmingly white, Um, and I think that, I think that, yeah, I think that the kind of neuroscience and, leaving, you know, the neuroscience combined with leaving the church, combined with, um, or I mean, it wasn't even leaving the church initially. It was questioning the church, um, combined with, um, kind of the anti-racist um, education that I was putting out on Twitter ended up being, I'm trying to think here. I mean, it definitely got, it, Definitely got me a lot of attention. Um, but I realized that there are a lot of people who really want resources. And it is, yeah, as you know, Mike, it is not a good use of my time to answer everybody and handhold on Twitter. Um, and so I decided to start putting together some resources on my website, um, you know, kind of creating and curating resources from other places, um, as well as, you know, distilling what I'd read and making it, you know, more accessible because a lot of what, a lot of what I had access to was very academic and, um, you know, so making it accessible to, to folks who would, you know, never actually sit down and read a research paper or know what to do with the information they found in one um, became a pretty big priority for me (laughs) in that space. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, like I said, it, it got me, it got me a lot of attention on Twitter. Um, some of it, some of it not good, but most of it's been incredibly overwhelmingly positive. So that's great. Mm.
0: And so that leads to this like amazing new project, uh, which you're calling white homework. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so my What I originally, you know, what I'd originally started thinking was if I can put all of this, all of this information into one spot, like that would make it, that would make it, um, you know, so that when people would come to me on Twitter and be like, okay, what do I do about racism? I could say, go to this link. So, um, you know, because it did, it ended up like sucking up so much of my time and my emotional energy. And then, you know, sometimes even as we know, Twitter can do, you know, sending me into like this kind of tailspin of like just anxiety and depression because people are, you know, a lot of people on Twitter are not, not kind people. Um, mm. and so, you know, when I would get pushed back, like, I don't mind going and like, you know, going and fetching information or like, Hey, you should read this book. Um, for people, if, you know, if I know you, if I have a relationship with you, but if you just like show up in my timeline and start blowing me up and you're like, you need to provide receipts. I'm like, honey, I have receipts or I would not be saying this. Um, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to go and I'm not going to go Google this for you because if you don't know anything about it, that tells me you don't actually care about the work. Um, so what I've decided to do with white homework is put everything into one spot, and I'm trying to um, make it a very diverse group of resources because I understand after like promoting all kinds of podcasts, like up the wazoo on Twitter, that podcasts don't work for everybody. So um, I'm going to, you know, collecting podcasts that are um, another, you know, uh, resources that are created by people of color. For people of color, mostly, mostly for people of color, because we live in a society where every day we hear conversations between, you know, white men, especially, but, but white people and being able to sit in converse you know, sit in, listen into conversations that people of color, um, especially women of color have is incredibly insightful. And, um, I think it has this really Powerful kind of humanizing effect, like you know, we were talking about self segregation and the fact that you know most white Americans don't have a black friend. Um, so yeah, having these resources available where you can where you can sit down, you can hear these conversations that people would be having on on their front porch or at you know at the kitchen table. Um, I think is really. I think it's really important. I think it's an important way to, to educate yourself. And also, you know, for me, when I, you know, when I share resources, um, I recently, I recently put together a little, video and threw it up on youtube called why your brain is racist and it just talks about you know american society and the way that that was structured and the way that like we're only exposed to most of us including myself are only exposed to you know very negative images of of black people um or if they're positive they're superhuman so like think football um and or black panther Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And so having having this idea and you're having these ideas, not even in your head, it's not things that you seek out, but just like culturally in the ether has an impact on your brain wiring. Um, and, you know, I try I've tried so hard to explain this to so many people. And, I, you know, it, one way that it really strikes me is I don't do you know, I don't do gendered anything. But my kids, because they live in a society where there is like this gender norm that is binary, are like, oh, well, pink is for girls. And it's like, no, pink is for everybody. It's like, headbands are for girls. No, headbands are for people with heads. Um, and, you know, so they're internalizing all of these things just because every day they exist in an environment where it's considered the norm. Um and even when I push back against it, because I do intentionally, um, it's still it still is not it still doesn't counter what they experience um, just on a daily basis. And the same you know, the same thing ends up being true for our experiences or lack of experiences um with people of color. So I really wanted to kind of, you know, I work really hard to try to like humanize. <laughs> people of color, especially black people, um, because of that. And that, you know, that's a big part of what white homework is when, you know, when I tell people like, Hey, you know, anti-racism is, it's a lifelong commitment to seeing the world around you for what it is, right. Not this like fictional American myth that we've been sold, but like actually understanding and seeing the effects of the fact that white supremacy was literally written into the constitution, like into the founding documents of the country. Um, you know, we have to, we have to work to replace a lot of these negative images that just exist by virtue of it being, you know, we live in 2019 in the United States of America. Um, so I mean, do a lot of this really, actually, on Instagram. <clears throat> excuse me. and i posted I posted something about this this morning because, you know, I, sh- I end up sharing <clears throat> oh my gosh, sorry. I end up sharing a lot of photos of black people just being normal <laughs> on Instagram. Yeah. And the reason I do that is because so many people, like have almost no actual experiences with people of color, black people specifically. And so just seeing, like a black family, you know, in Yosemite, like that's, that's not something that they usually see. Right. And it's not a part of like, you know, it, you know, your life is segregated like in reality, but also a lot of the time online. And so just saying like, Hey, you know, follow people of color, like, (laughs) and like look for people of color where you are because a lot of the time you know we don't see what we're not looking for um and kind of sharing these very like normalizing images i think is incredibly important in what i'm doing you know just like reinforcing this the normalcy of black people <laughs> um yeah. Yeah. you know it's like us is fun and get out is fun and black panther is fun but like let's let's just be normal. Like, let us just be human. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of where white homework stemmed from was this idea of like, okay, you need to replace these negative images that are being, uh, you know, negative or superhuman images that are being put into your head with reality. Um, you know, and just like intentionally seeking to humanize black people. Um, is kind of like the root of, of what I'm doing in white homework because I think that that is a lot of the practice of anti-racism is just finding the humanity in people of color in a, you know, in a society, in a culture where, you know, we're, we're just dehumanized by default. So. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I think there's, has been a lot of frustration in my audience, people who listen to me in whatever context um, over how I relate to what I kind of internally label nice white people, and nice white people aren't um, white people that are hiding their segregationist or overtly white supremacist tendencies, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> those are those are really awful white people, but nice white people uh, are pr- about my age or younger, and they grew up in a public education system where uh classes were racially and ethnically mixed Mm -hmm. and the the message from all their teachers was we're all the same and we're in america and everybody has the same rights in america and so these children grew up with this you know post-racial colorblind way of understanding race in america and then the last few years have been really tough on them psychologically uh, as the realities of the fundamental injustice in our, quote, justice system, unquote, are revealed, the injustice in our economic systems, the injustice surrounding schooling and surrounding housing, um, everywhere you look, uh, every, every name that's a death that turns into a hashtag has slowly debased these folks, like me, of the notion that they grew up in a colorblind post-racial America but once they have that insight if they're evangelical or post-evangelical there's a very common pattern step one, oh my gosh America is better for white people and that's a really like frightening and emotionally upsetting notion which creates this, this profound sense of guilt if you're white and so being good evangelicals faced with a problem, the first question is, how do we save these people? Which leads them to come into a public space or, or talk to people they know barely at all and say, how can I help? How can we fix it? And why I reference frustration in my audience is they get frustrated that I get so frustrated with questions like, how do I help? How do we fix it? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to Google? Like, white people don't know where to begin to talk about anti-racism. And I get frustrated because I'm so embarrassed because that was me like three years ago. (laughs) Like, it's not (laughs) like I'm, you know, some super enlightened person on matters of race. Like, I figured out we live in a white supremacist society literally like three calendar years ago. And I've reflected a lot on this tendency for clueless and suddenly aware there's a problem white people kind of chasing people of color down the street saying, help, help me help you. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> like, how does that happen? And I think I, I think I have some idea at least how it happened for me to be a good evangelical was not to do your own work, but to listen to your pastor and listen to your Sunday school teacher and do what they told you. And so you have all these white evangelicals, and they've lost their pastor, and they've lost their Sunday school teacher, but they haven't learned how to learn for themselves. And so with a kind of, I think, a positive uh, approach in their life, an acknowledgement of racism— they then place the nearest person of color in the role of their pastor or their Sunday school teacher and say, tell me what to do. And what excites me so much, Tori, about white homework is you assembling a curriculum that lets people not only start to learn about anti-racism, but in the process of going through resources on their own actually learn how to learn for themselves without having to lean into a central authority. And I think this is world-changing stuff. I I think that the promise for things like white homework is to not only help white people understand how to engage in anti-racist actions, but also to take accountability for their own understanding of the world that they didn't have previously. Um, And that's why I'm so excited that we get to talk today and that everyone listening right now has the opportunity to do something really special, and that's help you launch this work. So would you tell us about your Patreon and how people can get engaged in making white homework happen and available for all?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically everything, all of Tori on the internet is Tori glass or slash Tori glass. So my Patreon is patreon.com slash Tory glass. Um, and yeah, that is where I am currently for, you know, the month of July doing, um, a big push to get, um, funded so that I can do a podcast. Um, I realize that there's all kinds of, um, people obviously learn in all kinds of different ways. And so, um, having resources, ava- resources available on my website is great. Um, but I think that having them after talking to my audience, it seems like most people find podcasts to be the most accessible way to learn and educate themselves. So, um, yeah, right now I am working on that and I'm super excited about it. Um, so we're going to do a podcast and then, you know, there's going to be more, more educational resources coming after the podcast is launched. Um, and it's going to be, you know, doing some, some events as well, um, next year, which I'm super excited about. So, um, people should definitely stay tuned for that. But, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, toryglass.com or, you know, patreon.com slash toryglass. Either one of those will get you um, to the right spot. Um, so I have a little, I've got a little support button on my website. So if, if you wind up, if you wind up there, you know, it's still easy to get navigate over to Patreon. And um, yeah, and, I mean, I'm super, interrupt oh, sorry, go.
0: Interrupt, but I, you can't say this yourself. Tori is an incredible writer, like an incredible writer and already has a significant amount of written and blog material on her website that is super worth reading
1: and learning about. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, I try to like, I try to make it accessible and, um, even though I do get extremely angry sometimes on Twitter, I try to (laughs) try to make what I'm writing like kind of calm I guess, and not like shamey or like trying to guilt people, just, you know, being honest about like when you, like you said, like when you get to that point of, oh my God, like we live in a white supremacist culture, like what do I do? Um, you know, if you can, if you can get to that point, then I think that, yeah, the content on my blog is really, is really, um, helpful. Um, if you haven't gotten to that point, like go read the book, white fragility, cause that'll help. Um, and yeah, so that's I mean, right now that's that's really what I'm working on is just getting getting funded so that I can get my podcast launched. And um, after that, there'll be all kinds of, of fun stuff. So yeah,
0: is there anything else you want to tell folks listening?
1: Hmm. Okay. So this is what I've been this is what I've been sitting with for like the last several weeks. Um, is this idea that anti-racist work is, it's a lifelong commitment. I mean, it's a lifelong commitment for me because I was raised, you know, in all white spaces. So I have, you know, I have the same work that I have to be doing. Um, And I recently realized in a lot of ways that it is like tending a garden and like, you, you know, we get super excited when you first plant a garden, like you get super excited. um, But you don't just drop seeds in the ground and then like come back the next day or come back the next month and like, take your fruit into the house, right? Like you actually have to show up on a regular basis and get in the dirt and do the work and pull the weeds. And you know, you don't get to like skip days because you know, the weather's gross or whatever, like that might be the time that you have to do more work. Um, and so I've kind of been like sitting with this idea of, you know, anti-racism work be like being like pulling weeds and like tending a garden and making sure that like the soil is a place where you can actually grow decent fruit. Um, I think that the bar is so low for white people in this country. Like you don't obviously like look at the Trump administration, but, um, there is making it, I think that this, for me, like this makes it a very accessible idea, right? Of like, yes, it is work. I, I do have to get into the dirt. I do have to like show up on a regular basis, um, but it's not impossible, right? Like it's not something that you that, that you can't achieve, you know? And if you can consistently do that, eventually you will see a harvest. I think that that harvest is going to benefit Black people, Otherwise, you're not doing it right. But um, (laughs) I Mm. think that that for me has kind of been like what I am, you know, what I'm sitting with and kind of what I'm engaging with is just this idea of, of tending to my own personal anti-racist practice. Mm.
0: Mm. Tori, thanks for making the time to talk this morning.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: So again, to learn more about Tori's work and to support her new project, White Homework, just go to ToriGlass.com, which there'll be a link to on AskScienceMike.com, just in case you literally can't figure out how to spell Tori Glass. <laughs> 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 I want to thank Andrew Golucki for pre-production, Greg Nordine for production, and Jed Bodiford for writing the Ask Science Mike theme song. Thanks to all my Patreons for making AskScienceMike exist and my rent get paid. <laughs> And uh, thank you all for listening. I can't wait to speak with you next week.